Section forty one being chapter ten, parts twelve and thirteen of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume One by John Bagnall Bury. Chapter 10, Part 12. Athens Fails in Boeotia. The recovery of Nisaea, which had been lost by the Thirty Years' Peace, was a solid success, and it seemed to the ambitious hopes of the two generals who had achieved it the first step in the recovery of all the former conquests of their city. Hippocrates and Demosthenes induced Athens to strive to win back what she had lost at Coronea, but Boeotia was not like Megara, and an attempt on Boeotia was an unwise reversion to the early continental policy of Pericles, which Pericles had himself definitely abandoned. The dream of a second Oinophyta was far less likely to come true than the threat of a second Coronea and the enterprise was a departure from the Periclean strategy, of which Nicias was the chief exponent, and it is significant that Nicias took no part in it. Moreover, at this moment, Athens, as we shall see, ought to have concentrated her forces on the defence of her Thracian possessions, which were in grave jeopardy. The Boeotian, like the Megarian, plan was formed in concert with native malcontents who wished to overthrow the oligarchies in the cities, to establish democratical governments, and probably dissolve the Boeotian Confederacy. At this time the Confederacy was governed by eleven Boeotarchs, four of whom were chosen by Thebes, and a federal council representing the various districts of Boeotia, and divided into four panels. The new Boeotian plan, in which Demosthenes was now concerned, did not involve such extensive operations and combinations as that which he had conceived when he invaded Aetolia. But the two plans resembled each other, in so far as each involved operations from the Chrysian Gulf. Demosthenes, having sailed to Naupactus and gathered a force of Acarnanians, was to go on to secure Siphae the port of Thespiae, on the shore of the promontory beneath Mount Helicon. On the same day, the Athenian army under Hippocrates was to enter Boeotia on the north-east and seize the temple of Apollo at Delium, which stood on the sea-coast over against the Lelantine plain in Euboea. At the same time, Chironea, the extreme west town of the land, was to be seized by domestic conspirators. Thus, on three sides, the Boeotian government was to be threatened, and the same day was fixed for the three attacks. But the scheme was betrayed by a Phocian, and frustrated by the Boeotarchs, who occupied Siphae and Chironea with strong forces, and made a general levy of the Boeotians to oppose the army of Hippocrates. It mattered little that Demosthenes made a mistake about the day fixed for the attack. He found himself opposed by a Boeotian force, and could only retire. None of the internal movements in the Boeotian cities, on which the Athenians had counted, took place. Hippocrates, however, had time to reach and fortify Delium. He had a force of seven thousand hoplites, and over twenty thousand light-armed troops. A trench with a strong rampart and palisade was drawn round the temple, and at noon on the fifth day from their departure from Athens the work was completed. 
The army then left Delium to return home. When they crossed the frontier and entered the Athenian territory of Oropus, at about a mile from Delium, the hoplites halted, to wait for Hippocrates, who had remained behind to give final directions to the garrison of the temple. The light-armed troops proceeded on their way to Athens. The hoplites were interrupted in their rest by a message from Hippocrates, ordering them to form instantly in array of battle, as the enemy were upon them. The Boeotian forces had been concentrated at Tanagra, about five miles from Delium, and they had been persuaded by Pagondas, one of the Theban Boeotarchs, to follow and attack the Athenians in their retreat, although they had left Boeotia. After a rapid march, Pagondas halted where a hill concealed him from the view of the Athenians, and drew up his army. It consisted of seven thousand hoplites, the same number as that of the enemy, one thousand cavalry, and over ten thousand light-armed men. The Thebans occupied the right wing in the unique formation of a mass twenty-five shields deep. The other contingents varied in depth. The Athenian line was formed with a uniform and regular depth of eight shields. Hippocrates had arrived, and was moving along the lines, encouraging his men, when the enemy, who had for some time been visible on the crest of the hill, raised the paean and charged down. The extreme parts of the wings never met, for watercourses lay between them, but the rest pushed shield against shield, and fought fiercely. On the right the Athenians were victorious, but on the left they could not sustain the enormous pressure of the massed Theban force, especially as the Thebans were probably, man for man, stronger than the Athenians, through a laborious athletic training. But even the victory on the right was made of none effect through the sudden appearance of a squadron of cavalry, which Pagondas, seeing the situation, had sent unobserved round the hill. The Athenians thought it was the vanguard of another army, and fled. Hippocrates was slain, and the army completely dispersed. The Battle of Delium confirmed the verdict of Coronea. The Boeotians were left masters of the field, but Delium itself was still held by the invader. This led to a curious negotiation. The Athenians demanded their dead, and the Boeotians refused permission to take them, unless they evacuated the Temple of Apollo. Now, if there was an international custom which was universally recognized among the Greeks, even among the barbarous Aetolians, it was the obligation of the victor to allow his defeated opponents to remove and bury their dead, unconditionally. This custom had the sanction of religious feeling, and was seldom violated, but in this case the Boeotians had a pretext for departing from the usual practice. They alleged that the Athenians had on their side violated the laws of Hellenic warfare by seizing and fortifying the sanctuary of Delium, and living in it, as if it were unconsecrated, using even the sacred water. There seems little doubt that the conduct of the Boeotians was a greater departure from recognized custom than the conduct of the Athenians. The herald of the Athenians made what seems a foolish reply, to the effect that Delium, having been occupied by the Athenians, was now part of Attic soil, and that they showed the customary respect for the temple, so far as was possible in the circumstances. "'You cannot tell us to quit Boeotia,' he said, "'for the garrison of Delium is not in Boeotia.' The Boeotians made an appropriate answer to the quibble. "'If you are in Boeotia, take what is yours. If you are in your own land, do as you like.' The dead were not surrendered, and the Boeotians betook themselves to the blockade of Delium. They took the place by a curious device. 
they sawed in two and hollowed out a great beam, which they joined together again very exactly, like a flute, and suspended a vessel by chains at the end of the beam. The iron mouth of a bellows, directed downwards into the vessel, was attached to the beam, of which a great part was itself overlaid with iron. This machine they brought up from a distance on carts to various points of the rampart, where vine stems and wood had been most extensively used, and when it was quite near the wall, they applied a large bellows to their own end of the beam, and blew through it. The blast, prevented from escaping, passed into the vessel, which contained burning coals and sulphur and pitch. These made a huge flame, and set fire to the rampart, so that no one could remain upon it. The garrison took flight, and the fort was taken. The Boeotians no longer refused to surrender the dead, who included rather less than one thousand hoplites. Part 13. The War in Thrace. Athens loses Amphipolis. The defeat of Delium eclipsed the prestige of Athens, but did not seriously impair her strength. Yet it was a fatal year and a much greater blow, entailing a permanent loss, was dealt her in her Thracian dominion. The war in Thrace was always complicated by the neighbourhood of the kingdoms of Thrace and Macedonia. Before the fall of Potidaea, the Athenians had formed an alliance with Sitalces, king of Thrace, and made his son Sadocus an Athenian citizen. The realm of Sitalces extended from the Strymon to the Euxine. Its coastline began at Abdera, and ended at the mouth of the Ister. His revenue of tribute, both from Greek towns and barbarians, amounted, in the reign of his successor, to more than four hundred talents, counting only what was paid in the shape of coin. The alliance with Athens seems to have lasted till the king's death. An Athenian ambassador from Thrace, in the Acarnians of Aristophanes, reports to the assembly, We passed our time in drinking with Sitalkes, he's your friend, your friend and lover, if ever there was one, and writes the name of Athens on his walls. Perdiccas, the shifty king of Macedonia, played a double game between Athens and Sparta. At one time he helped the Chalcidians against Athens, at another he sided with Athens against her revolted allies. In 429, combined operations had been planned between Athens and Sitalkes. Sitalkes was to lead the Thracian tribesmen against Perdiccas, and to help in the reduction of the Chalcidic rebels. A huge Thracian army was mustered, and invaded Macedonia. The territory was laid waste, but for some reason which Thucydides does not adequately explain, the Athenian force did not arrive, and the Thracians withdrew. Throughout all changes of fortune, the city of Methoni, situated to the south of the mouth of the Haliacmon, held to Athens with unshaken fidelity, though the varying relations between Athens and Perdiccas must have seriously affected the welfare of the Methonians. Some decrees relating to Methoni have been preserved on a marble, adorned with a relief of the Athenian Demos seated, stretching out his hand to the Demos of Methoni, who stands accompanied by a dog. Perdiccas and the Chalcidians of Olynthus feared that the success of Pylos might be followed by increased activity of the Athenians in Thrace, and they sent an embassy to Sparta, requesting help and expressing a wish that Brasidas might be the commander of whatever auxiliary force should be sent. It was wise policy for Sparta to threaten her rival in Thrace at this juncture, though the prospect of any abiding success was faint. 
No Spartans went, but seven hundred helots were armed as hoplites. The government was glad to take the opportunity of removing another portion of this dangerous element in the population. Having obtained some Peloponnesian recruits, and having incidentally, as we have already seen, saved Megara, Brasidas marched northward to the new colony of Heraclea. Brasidas was a Spartan by mistake. He had nothing in common with his fellows except personal bravery, which was the least of his virtues. He had a restless energy and a spirit of enterprise, which received small encouragement from the slow and hesitating authorities of his country. He had an oratorical ability, which distinguished him above the Lacedaemonians, who were notoriously unready of speech. He was free from political prejudices, and always showed himself tolerant, just, and moderate in dealing with political questions. Besides this, he was simple and straightforward. Men knew that they could trust his word implicitly. But the quality which most effectually contributed to his brilliant career, and perhaps most strikingly belied his Spartan origin, was his power of winning popularity abroad, and making himself personally liked by strangers. In Greece the Spartan abroad was a proverb for insolence and misbehaviour. Brasidas shone out on a dark background by his frank and winning manners. His own tact and rapid movements, as well as the influence of Perdiccas, enabled Brasidas to march through Thessaly, which was by no means well disposed to the Lacedaemonians. When he reached Macedonia, Perdiccas required his assistance against Arabius the king of the Lincestians in Upper Macedonia. Brasidus was impatient to reach Chalcidice, and he contrived to make a separate arrangement with Arhabaeus, and abstained from invading Lincestis, to the disappointment of Perdiccas. He then marched against Acanthus, situated on the base of the peninsula of Acti. The mass of the Acanthians were perfectly content with the position of their city as a member of the Athenian confederacy. They had no grievance against Athens, and they were unwilling to receive the overtures of Brasidas. They were, however, induced by a small party to admit Brasidas alone into the city, and give him a hearing in the assembly. From his lips the Acanthians learnt the Lacedaemonian programme, and Thucydides has given the substance of what he said. We declared at the beginning of the war that we were taking up arms to protect the liberties of Hellas against Athens, and for this purpose we are here now. You have a high repute for power and wisdom, and therefore a refusal from you will retard the good cause. Every city which joins me will retain her autonomy. The Lacedaemonians have pledged themselves to me on this point by solemn oaths and I have not come to be the tool of a faction, or to enslave the many to the few. In that case we should be committing an act worse than the oppression of the Athenians. If you refuse, and say that I have no right to thrust an alliance on a people against its will, I will ravage your land and force you to consent, and for two reasons I am justified in doing so. The tribute you pay to Athens is a direct and material injury to Sparta, for it contributes to strengthen her foe and secondly, your example may prevent others from embracing freedom. When Brasidas retired, there was a long debate. Much was said on both sides. The manner of Brasidas had produced a favourable impression, and the fear of losing the vintage was a powerful motive with many for acceding to his demand. 
the vote was taken secretly, and the majority determined to detach themselves from Athens, though they had no practical grievance, and were not enthusiastic for the change. Sparta's natural friends, here as in other cities, were the oligarchs. Acanthus was an Andrian colony, and its action led to the adhesion of two other Andrian colonies, Stagira and Argilus, and the relations which Brasidas established with Argilus led to the capture of the most important of all Athenian posts in Thrace, and among the most important in the whole Athenian empire, the city of Amphipolis. This place, of which the foundation has been already recorded, had diminished the importance of Argilus and roused the jealousy of the Argilians, although some of the colonists were of Argilian origin. The coming of Brasidas offered Argilus an opportunity, for which he had been waiting, against the Athenians of Amphipolis. After a cold, wintry night march, Brasidas found the bridge of the Strymon defended only by a small guard, which he easily overpowered. Amphipolis was completely unprepared, but Brasidas did not venture to attack the city at once. He expected the gates to be opened by conspirators within, and meanwhile he made himself master of the territory. That a place of such first-rate importance as Amphipolis should be found unprepared at a time when an energetic enemy like Brasidas was actively engaged against other Athenian cities in the neighbourhood seemed a criminal negligence on the part of the two strategoi to whom defence of the Thracian interests of Athens was entrusted. These were Thucydides, the son of Olorus, and Eucles. It was inexcusable in Eucles, who was in Amphipolis, to leave the bridge without an adequate garrison, and it was considered culpable of Thucydides, who had mining interests in the district, not to have moved up the Athenian squadron from the island of Thassos. A message was sent at once to Thucydides. That officer hastened back with seven triremes, and reached the mouth of the Strymon in the evening of the same day. But in the meantime Brasidas had offered the inhabitants of Amphipolis such easy terms that they were accepted. He promised every citizen who chose to remain equal political rights, without any loss of property, while all who preferred to go were allowed five days to remove their possessions. Had the Amphipolitans known how near Thucydides was, they would probably have declined to surrender. Thucydides arrived just too late but he preserved Aeon at the mouth of the river, and repelled an attack of Brasidas. The true blame for the loss of Amphipolis probably rests not on the general, who was in a very difficult position, but on the Athenians, who, instead of making adequate provision for the defence of Thrace, were misled by the new strategy of Demosthenes into the unsuccessful expedition to Boeotia. It must be remembered that Thucydides was responsible for the safety of the whole coast of Chalcidice and Thrace, that at any moment he might be summoned to defend any part of it from Potidaea to the Chersonese, and that therefore either Aeon or Thassos was a suitable centre for his headquarters, and that Aeon had the disadvantage of having no harbour. It may be that we are indebted to the fall of Amphipolis for the great history of the war, the Athenians accused the neglect of their generals as having cost them one of their most valuable possessions. Thucydides was sentenced to banishment, and it is probable that Cleon, to whom he bore no good will, was instrumental in drawing down upon him a punishment which possibly was not deserved. But in his exile the discredited general became the greatest of Greek historians. 
If he had remained at Athens and continued his official career, he might not have concentrated his whole mind on his history. By travelling in foreign lands, among the enemies of Athens, and in neutral states, Thucydides gained a large knowledge of the Hellenic world, and wrote from a wider point of view than he could have done if he had only had an Athenian experience. Associating, he says himself, with both sides, with the Peloponnesians quite as much as with the Athenians, because of my exile, I was thus enabled to watch quietly the course of events. Judged in this way, the fall of Amphipolis, a great loss to Athens, may have been a great gain to the world. Having secured the Strymon, Brasidas retraced his steps and subdued the small towns on the high eastern tongue of Chalcidice. The Andrian Sane and another place held out, and their obscurity saved them. Brasidas hastened on to gain possession of Toroni, the strongest city of Scythonia. A small party of the citizens invited and expected him, but the rest of the inhabitants and the Athenian garrison knew nothing of his coming until the place was in his hands. Toroni was a hill city by the sea. Besides its walls, it had the protection of a fort on a height, which rose out of the water and was connected with the city by a narrow neck of land. This fortress, known as Lecythus, was occupied by an Athenian garrison. Brasidas halted within about half a mile from the city before daybreak. Seven bold soldiers, light-armed and carrying daggers, were secretly introduced by the conspirators. They killed the sentinels on the top of the hill, and then broke down a postern gate, and undid the bars of the great gate near the market-place, in order that the men without might rush in from two sides. A hundred targeteers who had drawn near to the walls dashed in first, and when a signal was given, Brasidas followed with the rest. The surprise was complete. Fifty Athenian hoplites were sleeping in the agora. A few were cut down, most escaped to the fort of Lecythus, which was held for some days, and then captured. Brasidas called an assembly of the Toronians, and spoke to them in words which sounded strange indeed, falling from the mouth of a Hellenic victor. He told them that he had not come to injure the city or the citizens, that those who had not aided in the conspiracy to admit him would be treated on a perfect equality with the others, that the Lacedaemonians had never suffered any wrong from Turoni, and that he did not think the worse of those who opposed him. End of part 13 This recording is in the public domain.